ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Looking for exposure to the aerospace and defense industry? The Gabelli Commercial Aerospace and Defense ETF, managed by Lieutenant Colonel Tony Bancroft, provides the tax efficiency and cost effectiveness of a traditional ETF with strong returns generated by active management. Invest in security, soar with prosperity with GCAD. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFS forward slash GCAD to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Rich Lee, Head of Program Trading and Execution Strategy with Baird, who's a global financial services firm with over $250 billion in client assets. And Rich's focus is really on helping institutional clients with their ETF trading strategies. But I would say Rich has also uh, forgotten more about ETFs than most people know. And so this should be fun. We're going to go around the horn on several hot topics, including this recent surge in bond ETF trading volume. Uh, we saw record trading in HYG last week, the uh, iShares High Yield Bond ETF. There's really just been a lot of uh, action around bond ETFs in general recently. So we'll get into that. We're going to talk concentration risk in the S&P 500 and some of the considerations for ETF investors. We'll get into actively managed ETFs. Uh, let's see here. Uh, T plus one settlement for ETFs. So some of you might not be aware that ETFs are moving from T plus two to T plus one settlement next May. And you'll be hearing a lot more about that as we get closer to the uh, date. But I thought given Rich's role, it might be good to get some uh, initial thoughts on any potential implications here. So a lot for us to uh, dive into. Should be a great conversation. Also joining me will be Ed Rosenberg, head of ETF and funds management at Texas Capital Bank, who back in July, they launched the Texas Capital Texas Equity Index ETF, ticker symbol TXS, Texas. And as you can guess by the name, this holds the stocks of companies headquartered in the state of Texas. And so we're going to discuss why an investor might want to do that, why own only Texas-based companies, and how might this fit into a uh, broader investment portfolio. I'm kind of fascinated by this uh, concept. And I'll tell you, Texas Capital isn't viewing this as some sort of uh, one-trick pony. This isn't a gimmick uh, because they filed last week for two other Texas-specific ETFs. They're looking to build out an entire uh, suite here. So look forward, uh, forward to hearing from Ed on that. 
Uh, now to start, I have on the line with me Vetify's Roxana Islam. Uh, Roxana is Associate Director of Research at Vetify. And our topic this week, try not to be uh, shocked, we're going to discuss these recently launched Ethereum Futures ETF. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back. All right, so look, last time you joined me, which was in uh, early August, that was just after we saw that wave of Ethereum futures ETF filings. Like, I'm sure you recall in the span of, it was about two weeks, there were something like 14 Ether futures ETF filings from uh, 10 different issuers. It was something close to that. Now, of course, fast forward to last week, seven of these have since launched. Uh, I guess the SEC apparently accelerated the launch of these in anticipation of a potential government shutdown. So these came to market pretty quickly. But in any event, as I'm sure you recall, uh, back then you and I talked about how demand for these was likely to be pretty minimal. And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what we saw last week. There just wasn't a, a whole lot of interest here. So I ran the numbers over the weekend and show about 17 and a half million in uh, net new assets into these seven ETFs last week. 17.5 million combined, <laughs> that's it. And so uh, to start, I'd love to just get your uh, initial reaction here. This was much different than what we saw from Bitcoin futures ETFs a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I don't think it's it's been much of a surprise, um, you know, especially when you compare it to those um, Bitcoin futures launches, uh, Bitcoin future ETF launches a couple of years ago. Um, so when BITO launched um, in 2021, it was the first of its kind, and it, it's currently still the market leader. Um, it traded around a billion on its first day in October 2021, compared to about seven million on that first day for these seven Ether Futures ETFs. That's a huge difference, um, but I think there's several things going on here. So first of all, if you just look at um, pure Bitcoin versus pure Ether, so not ETFs, but just Bitcoin versus Ether. Um, Bitcoin has far more popularity. So it has about 50% market share in the crypto market versus Ether, which has less than 20% market share. So it's logical to assume that Ether products would have less demand than Bitcoin products. Um, and also the crypto environment was totally different back then. So when, when Bitcoin was launched, um, Bitcoin was, you know, it was reaching about its peak popularity. Um, I think soon after that's when it hit its highest prices over 60k um, soon after that launch and then now if you look at bitcoin you know, it's a little bit less exciting it's down over 50 percent and ether um you know it trades pretty similarly so you know it, it peaked back then and now it's down even more at about 65 percent since that same peak so there's less widespread interest in the market right now compared to what there was two years ago and then also i think um partly because of grayscale we've all been talking about spot versus futures for a while now and all the advantages of spot ETS. So it makes sense that people just aren't going to be excited um, about a futures product after hearing um, that same story for several months. Completely agree with all three of those reasons you just laid out. And, and I'll add, again, when you joined me back in uh, early August, we talked about 
how the crypto environment overall was much less uh, frothy. And you pointed out, which I thought was a perfect example, if you look to the blockchain ETFs, right, the uh, crypto equity ETFs, those have been on top of the ETF performance leaderboard all year long, and the flows just haven't been there. So, so even though you know that that performance has been there investors i think they were just burned last year and so they've stayed away from this space overall i think that's been a big contributor but of course uh, i think at the end of the day investors really want spot products and we can talk about that here in just a moment let, let me ask you this from an etf issuers perspective i feel like if you and i can see that there's not going to be much demand here on these uh, ether futures etfs surely the issuers can as well Right. I, I mean, I know you and I are pretty darn good, but there are some very smart people at these ETF issuers. So why launch these Ether Futures ETFs if they knew demand was going to be light? Yeah, so I think there's still demand for these products and it might not be a lot, but you can make that argument for a lot of these different ETF strategies, especially for a lot of these um, smaller, obscure thematic strategies. You know, there's obviously a space in the market and you know it's not going to be the ETF of the year, but you still want to grab that market share if you can. Um, and I think that's a really good point about marketing because I've, I've been a little surprised over the past week because I assumed that this was going to be all about fees and the cheapest one would get the most assets quickly, um, which has been mostly true. So um, out of the pure Ether ETFs, uh, the Vanek product, EFUT, has the cheapest fees at about 66 basis points. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, the trading data, um, it traded only slightly more shares than the ProShare product, um, EETH. And, you know, it's, it's doing a little bit better in assets, um, but only slightly. <laughs> and EETH actually has an expense ratio of 95 basis points. So that's pretty surprising to me that um, the, you know, the cheaper product isn't significantly ahead. But I guess it also makes sense since ProShare's is a market leader in, in the Bitcoin futures ETFs with their Bitto product. Um, I just didn't expect it to be so close. So I think name recognition matters, and I think this will be important when we start seeing some of these spot Bitcoin launches in the future. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, again, if I'm the ETF issuer, and again, you and I sat here and said, look, we, we think demand for these is going to be pr pretty light overall. And so if I'm the ETF issuer, why go through the time and effort and cost to launch these uh, if, if you don't think there's going to be a lot of assets. And I, I've wondered if, like you mentioned, Van Eck, if they simply viewed this as a marketing endeavor or marketing expense. I actually tweeted this out uh, that, you know, think about this. Every media publication is covering these ETFs. You and I are sitting here talking about them. Uh, this definitely gets the ETF issuer's brand out there, right? It, it positions them as being more uh, forward-thinking, around crypto, which I do think could be helpful longer term as spot crypto ETFs come to market. But d does that make sense? I mean, do you think this could just be simply a marketing play for some of these issuers? Or do you really think they all thought they had a legit shot of getting meaningful assets? And I hear you, maybe demand for these will I increase over time. But in, again, I want to talk about uh, the spot market here in a minute. If you just think about this high level, I think it's very possible that we have spot crypto ETFs say a Bitcoin, uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF in January, maybe a spot Ether ETF, I, I don't know, sometime later in Q1, Q2, don't hold me to that, but you, you get my point. W where I'm heading is that would make these futures-based ETFs obsolete. And so I'm just trying to get into the mindset of I'm an ETF issuer, why launch these? Does, does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're building their name in this space, like like ProShares did. Um, you know, I, I saw Vanex video and I thought it was it was pretty cool. So they did have some really cool cool marketing around this product. So yeah, I think it's it's about building your name in the space. And when these um, spot Bitcoin products are launched, um, you know, you'll you'll already have sort of a good head start um, just being known in the crypto ETF market. Yeah, I, well, you mentioned a Vanek. They had a, a tweet that said. So can I interest you or the aunties and some of our other ETF offerings? And they had a link to their uh, ETF page. So I, I think that's a good example, right? They, they drew in some eyeballs by offering these Ether Futures ETFs. And I'm sure they were hoping more assets were going to be in those. But they uh, you know, quickly said, hey, we have some eyeballs on us. Let's see if we can get uh, some interest in our other products. The, the other thing I thought was kind of interesting in this whole thing, and we, and we can move on here, I just... Like, I, I wondered if some of the issuers who didn't even launch products um, were just doing it for marketing purposes. So, so for example, Roundhill, you may recall, got a ton of media coverage for uh, updating the expense ratio on their Ether Futures ETF filing to 19 basis points, right? But they didn't launch. They sat this entire thing out. But just them updating the expense ratio got them a ton of media buzz and media coverage. And I, I just, I don't know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. I just, I wonder if we'll see more of this where as the cost for filing for ETFs comes down, you know, you know, why not put a filing out there? Why not file for some other crypto spot ETF just to see if you can get the media to cover you uh, and just view it as a marketing spec, uh, expense. But um, in any event, okay, spot crypto ETF. So like I said, if we just take a step back here, we do now have... Bitcoin futures ETFs. We have Ethereum futures ETFs. We have combined Bitcoin and Ether futures ETFs. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, the SEC has lost their case to Grayscale, which, by the way, we should be getting some news on that, what, any day now, right, in terms of whether or not the SEC is going to appeal that. But if you add this all up, um, again, I would say things are looking pretty good for spot Bitcoin ETF approval. And then as I laid out previously, and I laid this out last time you were on the podcast, I won't go through all the logic here. But, you know, bottom line is, I think it's pretty logical to assume that if we do get a spot Bitcoin ETF, assuming that grayscale ruling stands, a spot Ether ETF wouldn't be far behind. And so I'm just curious, I mean, how close do you think we actually are to getting spot products? Is this whole thing a foregone conclusion now? Yeah, I think I think you could say that I'm sort of with consensus on this. I mean, I think if you asked me several months ago, I I, I said that there was no way that there was going to be any spot uh, ETF products launched in the in the next few months. Um, but now it seems like it'll be, if not by the end of this year, at least by early 2024. And I think that's the way the majority of people are thinking right now. Um, you know, obviously, the Grayscale victory was a huge turning point, and it just sort of seems like the SEC doesn't have many options left when it comes to approving these uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, Ether futures ETFs aren't necessarily um, a guaranteed green light for the spot Bitcoin ETFs because it's, it's just another futures product if you think about it. But at a certain point, you have to wonder how they can approve basically everything but spot Bitcoin ETFs. Um, I think the, the one important thing from this launch is that um, some people were thinking that the SEC might go as far to rescind um, these Bitcoin futures ETFs in an attempt to justify not approving Bitcoin ETFs. Um, I thought it was a little fresh, but I mean, now we know it's probably not going to happen because why would they launch these either futures ETFs and then rescind them soon after? So I think that's that's the important takeaway I'm getting from here. No, I agree with that. I think I was actually probably in that camp 
um, earlier in the year where I thought that was a real possibility that the SEC could rescind the uh, the, the future or the uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs. But I think to, to what you're what you're saying, I 100 percent agree. I mean, they they allowed a, a, a what a two times leverage Bitcoin futures ETF to come to market. Now they've allowed all these Ether futures ETFs. That's just not going to happen. And you know, if you look at the, um, I, I think the sentiment out there, especially from ETF issuers. I actually tweeted this out last week uh, as well. I was pretty busy on Twitter <laughs> apparently, but um, there were comments. Let's see, last Monday from Bitwise's Matt Hogan and uh, Jan Van Eck, who's of course the CEO of Van Eck. And they were both on CNBC, so let me read these to you. Matt said, quote, I expect we'll see a spot Bitcoin ETF this calendar year. And then uh, Jan said, quote, it looks like early in 2024, we will probably see a spot product. And so clearly issuers are feeling uh, pretty good here. And, you know, the word is there's a lot more dialogue now between the SEC and issuers on the spot Bitcoin ETF filing. So it just feels like... Uh, you know, things are heading in that direction. Um, let, let, let me ask you this. Let's say we do get a spot Bitcoin ETF in January. I'm, I'm very curious what you think the demand will actually uh, be like. And, and, and let me color that a little bit. So something else I tweeted out over the weekend was uh, Bitwise's Matt Hogan saying that he thinks U.S. listed uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs will gather $55 billion in net inflows during the next five years. That did not include the uh, roughly $17 billion in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And uh, again, you and I really haven't talked about what demand may be moving forward. What do you think about that number? And I guess, do you think expectations should be tempered at all following this lackluster debut of the Ether Futures ETFs? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with him. Um, you know, I'm a little bit less bullish, I think. I mean, I think there will be more demand for these spot Bitcoin ETS products for sure, um, more more so than we've seen um, with the Ether Futures products. I don't really think it's reflective of one another. Um, but I'm also thinking like that window of opportunity has kind of gone down. If these had come to market a couple of years ago, um, I think there would have been all sorts of demand for it. And now that sort of died down for some of the reasons we talked about a few minutes ago, mainly the fact that uh, Bitcoin prices are like 50% below their peak, a lot less exciting than they were a couple of years ago. Um, I think we're also getting to the point where investors can start to move away from risky assets. And that's not just crypto, but that's across the board. Um, but I think there's still a dedicated portion of the market that's been waiting for these. And then there's probably going to be some market share taken from uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs. Plus, there's the opportunity to attract new investors. So I think overall, there will be some strong demand. Um, and the demand we saw from these Ether futures ETFs is completely independent from what we'll see for spot Bitcoin ETFs. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think you're, you're right. Probably um, we won't see the level of demand that maybe we would have seen a couple of years ago. But I still stand by you know, my prediction that I do think these spot Bitcoin ETFs, when they launch, they will be the uh, biggest launches in the industry's history. And we can measure that however you want in terms of assets on the first week or first month. I think there's still going to be a tremendous amount of uh, demand. Again, whether it, it will be to the level that maybe I thought it would it would be a couple of years ago, I, you know, I don't know. But um, I still think that you know, fit, what did Matt say? $55 billion in the next five years? I can, de- I can definitely see that because you look at physical gold ETFs, and those have been on the market now for 20 years, so this isn't a perfect comparison, but those have something like 100-plus billion in uh, total assets. And I think that's at least – you can use that at least as a proxy for what 
Bitcoin ETF potential may be longer term. Uh, and so I, I wonder if Matt's even being a little conservative here. And I, if I recall in those comments that he made, you know, he said, hey, that $55 billion isn't showing up overnight. Again, that's over a five-year period. So that feels reasonable to me. But uh, Roxana, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent stuff as uh, always. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. That was Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. My next guest is Rich Lee, head of program trading and execution strategy with Baird, who's a global financial services firm with over $250 billion in client assets. And Rich is involved in a number of uh, areas, but primarily with helping institutional clients with their ETF trading strategies. Uh, I would say he's also an all-around ETF expert, and he's now joining me from New York. Rich, great having you uh, back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be back, Nate. Okay, so we are going to cover a, a number of topics that I think are front of mind for ETF investors right now. And so to start, I thought given that you are smack dab in the middle of uh, ETF trading there at Baird, and I know Baird is also an authorized participant, I'd love to ask you about bond ETF trading right now. I saw there was record trading volume in the largest high-yield bond ETF last week, HYG. I know the uh, iShares 20-plus year Treasury bond ETF, uh, ticker TLT, that's seen a huge surge in trading volume recently. There's really just been a lot more activity around bond ETFs, uh, period. And, and so what are you seeing and hearing right now? Sure. So great observation on, on your point, Nate. You know, as, as we actually looked at our most active ETF flows on the desk here at Baird, Last week, I, it, I quickly dawned on me that basically five of the top ten most active ETFs that we traded were actually bond um, or treasury-related ETFs. So, you know, as you pointed out, HYG, uh, we were very active in IGBLB, which is the iShares 10-year investment-grade corporate, uh, AGG, which is the iShares aggregate bond ETF, um, VCLT, which is the Vanguard long-term corporate uh, bond ETF, and MUB, which is the iShares National Muni Bond. So, you know, again, um, as you see, over 50% of the, the, the top 10 most active names that we've been trafficking in uh, are bared or, or bond um, and fixed income related. So definitely a lot of interest uh, in that space. Additionally, what's really kind of interesting is, you know, this theme of like bottom fishing, right, or looking for value. If you think about TLT, it's down about 30% um, since I guess the end of last year, but volumes up around 33%, right? And then similarly with HYG, which is down on the year, but volume is up around 70%. So definitely a lot of um, interest in the bond and fixed income ETFs out there. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, this is off the top of my head, but with TLT, I believe it's seen something like 17 billion in inflows this year, which puts it in the top three of all ETFs. And you mentioned bottom fishing. I think that there's clearly a, a large segment of investors who are trying to call a, a top in rates 
right now. And so it's just an interesting dynamic. I think fixed income is really challenging because, you know, do you lock in yields that we haven't seen in, in what, you know, 15 years or however long it's been? Do you lock those yields in now? And uh, it, or, you know, do you but, but if you lock those in, obviously you're taking the risk in something like TLT that you still have some, uh, you know, fairly significant drawdown potential. Uh, you know, on the other hand, if you just park on the short end of the curve, you have that reinvestment risk. That's right. Right. Yep. And, and then with HYG, you know, do you take on that credit risk right now in this environment? If you think we're going to head into a recession, you know, that's tricky. And so I think these volumes that we're seeing, it's just indicative of that uh, uncertainty out there from ETF investors in terms of w- what they should do. What about on the equity side? Is anything in particular standing out to you on ETF trading there or even just more broadly? Sure. So, you know, I think it's interesting, right? Like you, you've had about 68 uh, ETFs, which launched in September, which is, you know, about more than three a day that are launching, right? So it's an all-time record. Um, we're still seeing a lot of robust interest um, in the issuer space uh, for, for, for ETF demand, um, but the rate is slowing, right? So this is the second annual uh, year of depreciation that we've seen from the peak, right? So in, in 2021, where we had about $900 billion, um, in growth, and then in 2022, which we had about $614 billion, um, still a lot of robust growth, but some deceleration there in the velocity of, of shares that were, were, were coming um, that are coming to the market on the uh, launch side I don't know if you saw this I believe there were 69 new ETFs that came to market in September that was a an all-time record and then I was looking over the weekend something like 20 ETFs have already <laughs> launched so far in yeah. uh, October it's pretty remarkable um, okay let me tee up some other hot topics in ETFs right now and, and you can offer your uh, your quick take and I guess if we stay on the equity side, one of the areas that I continue seeing a lot of chatter around is the uh, concentration risk in the S&P 500, right? If you look, the top 10 holdings comprise about 32% of that index's weighting. I believe that's the highest ever. And uh, I, I actually tweeted out a great chart from Stratega's Todd Sohn last week that showed the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 have contributed nearly, listen to this, nearly 96% to that index's return through the end of September. That's the highest ever for a uh, positive performance year. Number two, by the way, is uh, 79% back in 2007, which is a little ominous, but I'll put that aside. But but does that concentration uh, concern you at all? Do you think ETF investors should be doing anything differently right now? Sure. So, you know, a couple of points to that, Nate, right? Like, you're absolutely right in that there's, there, there is a lot of concentration in the top 10 names within the S&P index, right? And certainly a large, non-trivial contribution to the returns, right? And then if you look at the top sort of, you know, six to seven names outside of that 10, right? Not only is there concentration, there heavy concentration with regard to returns, but there's a heavy like sector concentration too, right? So, so obviously a huge tech slant within those names. In terms of concentration risk, potentially it's a real thing. I think it it, it comes down to what your objective is, right? And if you think about like something like the SPY, which is a market cap market cap weighted index, which tries to replicate the 500 largest names in in the market, it's doing what it's designed to do. Right. And by virtue, tech is a strong sector, a lot of returns there. So it's going to have a heavier concentration. Right. And, and so you are potentially if you're looking to replicate the returns of the S&P 500, SPY is, is how are you going to do that? If you're looking to replicate the returns of the tech sector, XLK, same thing, heavy tech concentration. So what I would say to that is these ETFs are index products that are doing what they're designed to do. 
right? And so if you want diversification, then you need to think about where are you not getting diversification? Am I too tech focused? Am I too market cap focused? If I want exposure to the S&P, but I don't want market cap rated returns, maybe I'll look at something like the RSP, which is the equal weight S&P 500, right? So really it's about what sort of exposure you're looking for, but being cognizant of the potential risks that you're being exposed to within that exposure and how you potentially uh, mitigate that or hedge that. You, you bring up an excellent point in that right now we are seeing all these headlines around the concentration risk in the S&P 500, uh, uh, 500. But if you're an index investor in a longer term index investor, guess what? You got the benefit of that on the way up. That's right. and, and that always gets lost uh, in, in the shuffle. I think that's a very important point that, yeah, that's why you index. You, you get that's the benefit as right. that happens. Um, l- let's say you have an investor. You, you mentioned RSP. There, there are other alternatively weighted strategies out there. Maybe they don't want to go index based and they want to look to an active manager. So well, let's say we assume an active manager out there is actually doing something meaningfully different than the benchmark. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, active management has been a, a really a red hot area within the ETF industry, right? It's garnering a lot of attention. Uh, we're seeing outsized flows, new ETF launches there. Do you think that's something investors should consider right now? And I guess what's been your take on the growth of active ETFs overall? Sure. So, so great point, Nate, right? Like, you know, we just talked about concentration risk or, you know, certain exposures that you're getting to when you're looking at these passively indexed ETF products, right? And so, so if you are aware of that and you feel that there's a need to diversify, right? Well, if you are, have a heavy slant towards passive, what's a way to diversify? Start to think about some, some, pass, uh, some, some active strategies, right? So, you know, obviously it's no secret that traditional indexed ETF products were the, sort of the first generation of ETFs out there. And then the thing that's been garnering a lot of attention the last couple of years is this rise in the active uh, ETF space, right? So if you think about um, the growth, right, we're seeing about 14% growth for active uh, ETFs versus 3% growth for passives, right? So that's just a sort of a, maybe an indicator that we're seeing a lot of interest. This product group is really kind of coming to its own. People are looking to, to, to diversify and get exposure to different, you know, different investment styles, particularly active investment in this, in this uh, space, right? So, you know, I, I think that there's, there's definitely a lot of interest in this. I think if you are thinking where you've traditionally been looking only at passive index products, then the active space really kind of gives you an exposure that you may not have had traditionally. Um, and it's interesting because I think, you know, as we look at some of the active ETFs that are out there, I think there's something like 57% of, of active ETFs have outperformed passive ETFs this year. So, hmm. you know, again, an interesting space to, to kind of keep an eye on. Do you think we'll continue to see growth in active ETFs moving forward? Or do you think we're currently just in the perfect environment where we've had this shifting market regime overall. And so maybe investors are more attuned, you know, to active management, but perhaps, you know, once the performance shows itself over the long term, we've all seen the data that maybe uh, some of the air comes out of active ETFs. Or do you think, again, we'll continue seeing this growth uh, trajectory? I think, I think it's dependent on a number of things, as you pointed out, right? Like certainly, uh, Passive, sorry, active products are, are, you know, a newer entrant to the ETF space. There's a lot of interest. You have traditional 
long only money managers that are that are looking at the ETF channel as a way to get some other active products to market. Um, it's definitely there's a lot of growth and innovation in the space, but at the end of the day, the returns have to be there, right? And in everything that that that's done for in the investment space, the returns have to be there for the investors to have an interest. So I think it's it's a symbiotic relationship, but there's definitely you know a lot of room to grow within the active space. All right. I do want to ask you about uh, ETFs moving to T plus one settlement uh, next year. But before I do that, any other ETF stories front of mind for you right now? Anything else standing out? You know, there's, there's nothing in particular, but but sort of everything in particular, right? And, and you know, the, the reason I say that is if you think about sort of the macro environment that we've been in, in the last 18 months, right? Higher inflationary prices, higher interest rates, the war in Ukraine, and now the terrible attacks that happened in Israel. So any one of these individual macro events are catalysts to drive the the economy and the market in one direction or another, right? But at the same time, we've had all of these macro uh, sort of situations happening at once, but yet the market's been relatively strong. It's been able to shrug it off. You have the S&P up almost 20% on the year, and it's almost this Jenga game of macro events and how the market's able to absorb it. And so, you know, what we're kind of focused on is how many more of these sort of Jenga blocks can the, the economy take and still kind of maintain the robustness that we've seen in the last year? So that'll be an interesting theme to watch as we kind of go into next year. That's such a great analogy. And this has been an interesting year in that if you look at stocks, especially you look at growth or, or technology stocks, the performance has been remarkable overall. But yet you look at ETF lows, and this is something we've talked about all year long on the podcast, they have been muted. You, you you touched on that earlier. And so it's like investors just have not fully believed the rally that we've seen. And then, of course, at the same time, with where yields are at, those competing yields are attractive. If you can move into something you know risk-free and scoop up five, five and a half percent, you know, you move into investment-grade corporates above that, that's pretty compelling. And so I think you're right, just with everything going on, it's going to be interesting to see how, how that looks moving forward and, and how that's reflected in ETF uh, flows. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I th- and I think, you know, back to your earlier point about the activity that we're seeing in the fixed income ETF space, that's why you see so much activity in different ETFs, right? So TLTs, right, treasuries. Uh, you know, high yield investment grade, right? There's just a variety of views out there with regard to how investors are thinking about this macro environment that we're in, and seeing and you're seeing those themes played out in terms of how um, investors are going to market with regard to the stocks that the, the ETFs that they're buying and selling in the fixed income space. It's so interesting, and again, even on the equity side, like you mentioned, RSP, the uh, equal weighted S and P 500 ETF, you're seeing inflows there. So yeah, it's just a, a fascinating environment right now. Um, Rich, before I let you go, I am seeing a lot more talk about ETFs moving from a T plus two to T plus one settlement in May of next year. And I'm sure I'll be going much more in depth on this topic as we get closer to the date. And I know you and I could probably do a full what, hour or two podcast on this. But as someone who is an expert around ETF trading, is there anything that you think um, investors or advisors should be planning for around this or thinking about, or is this more of a uh, back-end industry plumbing you know, issue? Yeah. Well, sure. It, it definitely is a, 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 black, a back-end plumbing issue, but it is something that brokers, investment managers, and ETF 
um, issuers should be cognizant of and, and you know already planning for if they haven't already. And I, I do know that you know the majority of the industry actually has been thinking about this for a long time. Um, and the reality is, right, what's happening is we in the U.S. are moving from a T plus two um, from trade date where you tr- trade a ETF or stock to settling two days later to a T plus one. So within one day, um, trades will book and settle, right? And what's a little bit different about this is there's a shortened cycle time, but unlike in the past, uh, Europe and Asia is not moving to a concurrent cycle. They, the majority of the developed European and Asian markets are in a T plus two settlement cycle. So what that's going to do is that's going to cause a little bit of a settlement lag, right? So for instance, if you think about it in the context of trading a global rebalance for an index or an ETF, if I am a seller, a net seller of securities in Asia or Europe and a net buyer, well, I sell today, but I don't get my cash for two days, but I need the, that cash to fund those buys in the U.S., which are then settling you know, a day earlier. So that creates a whole host of um, operational and organizational issues that, that you know, we as an industry need to think through, right? How does it work from a settlement perspective? How does it work from a financing perspective, right? Not really an issue when we were in a zero interest in, in environment, but now that, that you know, money is relatively not free anymore, that's a concern, right? And so how do we manage that risk? So these are things that, that we as an industry are kind of thinking through and kind of working through right now. And those have implications from, um, you know, a creation redemption um, perspective when you think about some of the, e- the global ETFs out there. But again, something that, that the industry is like working towards, um, towards resolution for. I don't want to get uh, into the weeds on this again. I'll be covering this much more in depth, I'm, I'm sure, as we get closer to the date. But when you mention things like the settlement lag and, and financing costs, do you think uh, and, and, and what I'm thinking about is, again, the impact of the end investor or advisor. Do you think we could see spreads widen at all in some ETFs, some of the global ETFs, to, to account for that? I, I think potentially, right? And I think it all comes down to how the industry you know, addresses this, right? And so basically, if brokers uh, are forced to, to bear the cost of, of the cost of carry for, for interest rates, you know, that has to come from somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. potentially you see that play out in spreads, potentially you see that play out in higher commissions. Um, and if, if the issuers have to bear that cost because they're bearing the financing cost, does that play itself out in, in the way of like higher management fees, right? I mean, there is obviously, a, if there's settlement mismatch, right, and there's friction around that, and we are in a, in a place where you do have higher interest rates and there's a cost for cash, and that cost needs to be, you know, borne for, with regards to like doing a rebalance or, you know, settlement for a creation redemption, that's got to play out somewhere, right? Yeah, that'll be uh, interesting to watch. Um, you know, I do think from the uh, the benefit side, I think having ETFs settle essentially on the same clock as mutual funds will be good, you know, for the average investor, just eliminating some of that confusion around settlement times. And I think anytime uh, you have trade settle quicker, that means investors can access their cash quicker, which is a good thing. But yeah, it'll be interesting just looking at some of the, the back end, again, plumbing issues and whether or not that ultimately impacts the front end, what investors see in, uh, in spreads and those sorts of things. But Rich, so great having you back on the uh, podcast. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation this week. Thank you for joining me. Same here. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. That was Rich Lee, head of program trading and execution strategy with Baird. The Gabelli Aerospace and Defense ETF offers exposure to an industry poised to benefit from increased global defense spending. Ride the global aerospace and defense wave with Lieutenant Colonel Tony Bancroft, a fighter pilot turned fund manager at the helm. 
Invest in security, soar with prosperity with GCAD. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFS forward slash GCAD to learn more. joined by Ed Rosenberg, head of ETF and funds management at Texas Capital Bank, who back in July, they launched their first ETF. It's the Texas Capital Texas Equity Index ETF. The ticker symbol is TXS. This is currently the only state-specific equity ETF. And uh, Ed is now joining me from Dallas. Ed, great having you back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so my understanding is this is actually the first fund from Texas Capital, uh, period. And so let's start with a little uh, background here, and then certainly a lot I want to get into on the ETF itself. Uh, just tell us who Texas Capital is and why the uh, decision to enter the ETF market. Yeah, so Texas Capital is you know a full-service firm that delivers customer solutions to businesses, enterprise, and individuals that was founded in 1998. So the bank is about to hit its 25th anniversary coming up. Um, and so the bank's gone through an evolution and launched a lot of different areas in the last few years under the, I would say, new CEO. He's not new now in the last three years, but expanding to become that full-service financial institution headquartered in the state of Texas and giving it the ability to really service clients throughout their entire life cycle, whether it's you know, commercial banking, consumer banking, investment banking, wealth management, et cetera. And so I'm assuming that was a catalyst for getting involved in the ETF space. It was. So the, the well, I'll call it the asset management arm, even though it's ETF and funds management, really, um, is brand new. And it's, it's another service offering for the clients of Texas Capital and beyond, obviously. Okay, so the ETF itself, I think, is uh, pretty straightforward. So it holds about 220 companies headquartered in Texas. And then, as I understand it, the ETF uses uh, sector weightings that correspond to their contribution to Texas's GDP. And then the individual holdings are market cap weighted underneath that. Do I have that correct? And anything else you would add in terms of uh, construction? Yeah, no, uh, you are correct. There's a couple little things. One is there's, I don't believe there's ever been an ETF that's used sector weightings by GDP to show the impact before. Secondly, there are some cutoffs. So if a company has less than 250 million free float, it's excluded from the index. And there's also a tradeability, a liquidity screen. So if it trades less than $3 million in the previous 90 days when the index rebalance hits, it's excluded. There's about 350 companies publicly listed in the state of Texas hmm. today. Okay, so so very simply, I'll ask you, what is the rationale for investing only in Texas? Well, so let's. I'm going to cover Texas first, which will cover the rationale in a sense. But if you think of Texas, one, the GDP of the state is growing faster than the rest of the country. There's a lot of people moving here, not just individuals, though, companies. So it's the number one state for... Fortune 500 companies, number one state for Fortune 1,000 companies. There is a tax advantage to living in the state, 
And quite frankly, for companies moving in the state, there's no income tax on individuals, so I don't pay any. And there's no income tax on companies either. So companies are seeing that as an advantage. In addition, think of all the schools, right? Um, Red River Library just passed. And when you look at that, that's one of the schools, the top tier schools in the state. There's a ton of them. And when people who, you know, graduate, want to live somewhere, they can look at, for example, New York or San Francisco or L.A., there's much more expensive cost of living. They'd rather stay in the state and work where it's sunny most of the time. I know it can get a little hot, but there's a cheaper workforce and companies won't have to pay them as much. And so not only is the state growing, people are moving here at record paces. You know, Dallas-Fort Worth is one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. And then you even go beyond that to the tax advantages that people have for companies and themselves. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense that companies want to take advantage of that. And it adds to their bottom line and lets them grow. I mean, even think of this, you know, something I learned when I was working on the product is Texas is the number one exporting state in the union. I didn't know that, but it's got the most exports out compared to the rest of the country. Did did I see with uh, Texas's GDP that it would be the ninth largest country in the world? Do do I have that right? You do. And I think I'm going to say this, though. I think when the numbers come out, it might be eighth. It might have passed Italy. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. And the only state in the union that's larger today is California. And that one's been shrinking because companies and other things keep leaving the state. Okay, so let me ask you this. From a portfolio allocation standpoint, you know, I always like to try and think about any ETF from the perspective of an investor. And so do you view this ETF as a core holding or is it a thematic holding? Because I would think that any investor who owns, uh, say, you know, broad indexes in their portfolio, so the S&P 500, Russell 2000, et cetera, they already own most of these companies, right? And so is this to further um, concentrate on Texas corporations? Correct. They probably do, and they're interspersed with a lot of other corporations. So the way I design product, Nate, is specifically focused on companies that an investment thesis that you could put into your portfolio, either way you wanted to, short-term or long-term. So the way this lines up, depending on what metric you use and how you define it, it shows up as a large mid-cap blend or a small large-cap blend. So if you compare it to a large-cap blend category, for example, you'll see that one of the ways you could use it is you could take out, I'll make this up, some S&P 500 and put this in. Now, here's some of the rationale behind that. One is it has, you know, if you look at the um, growth rate, the historical earnings growth rate of the underlying companies, it's almost double what a typical large cap category would be. And then the dividend yield is, it's an estimated two and a half because we just hit our first one. Over a year, when you look at the typical large cap category, it's a little below two. I would say it's about one eight typically today. So you have some advantages. And then if you look, so we consider it mid cap. We line it up against the Russell mid cap index. That's just a broad based index. Since we've launched, hasn't been that long, but the performance difference is already about 300 basis points. So 
there could be some advantages, and that's in this rocky market. In- so what I would say is take a little bit of large cap, potentially a little bit of mid cap line, and hold this for a long time. Let me ask you this in terms of uh, demand for this ETF. I guess I could make the case that the biggest audience might be Texas pensions and endowments and other state specific institutional investors and advisors who are perhaps more uh, patriotic towards the state. Um, do, do you agree with that? Or I guess you tell us, I mean, what have you seen in terms of interest thus far? Who, who is the audience for the CTF? So I would tell you the audience seems to be, you know, starting off, I think it's obvious, right? It's people who live in Texas who are gravitating towards it initially. I mean, the assets have grown in the first few months about 60% since we launched. So it's moving every week and slowly getting bigger in a downward market. But over time, where I think you'll see the application further is not just going to be that, but you could be right on the pensions, endowments, all of those things could make sense. But in addition, people are seeing the value. I mean, I've traveled through New York the past few weeks, California before that, talked to a lot of different advisors who are extremely interested in the growth potential of this and putting it in their portfolio. So I think we think of Texas as, hey, it's only people in Texas. And you know this, Nate, let's be real. Is there any other state where you hear about Texas pride or pride in their state, I should say? That's Texas, (laughs) but like Texas, you know, everything, you hear the phrases, everything's bigger in Texas, or, you know, there's a ton of Texas pride, but you go beyond the state and talk about the investment thesis, there's a lot of interested people out there who are looking at the product, who've started adding it to their portfolio, and are really considering this as a long-term hold. So I think the application's gonna go well beyond just the state, and quite frankly, well beyond you know, something like the employee retirement system, or a teacher's retirement system, or some other place. Okay, so to your last point, um, I, I think you know I always try to play a little devil's advocate on this podcast, for better or worse. So as I'm sure you're aware, uh, there were a handful of other state-specific ETFs that launched way back in the day. There was actually another Texas ETF. There was yep. an Oklahoma ETF. There was also a, a city-specific ETF in Nashville, and unfortunately, none of those made it. And so yeah. do, do you think those were simply too early? Because especially with those Texas and Oklahoma ETFs, those launched what, in 2009, so clearly very early in the overall ETF life cycle. Do you think that was the the main factor there? And and I guess just how do you find success? So let's talk about the older ones first, specifically Texas and Oklahoma. Um, They were filed for in 08. I believe there were some issues getting them out the door. Um, They were expensive. I think they were 85 basis points. And in addition to that, Um, They were just market cap weighted. So they were mostly oil plays on both of them. You know, I remember when they launched, I've been in the ETF space getting closer to 19 years. And I know saying that makes me sound old, but. Hmm. um, And then Nashville, I never understood the city specific, right? That one didn't make sense to me. But when I went through and analyzed building this product, the difference is between this one and all of those is, one, it's cheaper. It's the first thing. Two, across the board, it actually has an investment thesis. So I'm going to pick on a company like Exxon for you. They're headquartered in Texas. 
do they really impact the Texas economy? I mean, I know they do some drilling in the state, and their headquarters is there. But beyond that, they're a multinational corporation. So a lot of their earnings, probably a huge percentage of what's called 95%, is coming from the rest of the world. If the economy is set up in Texas where it's beneficial for companies to be there and how they impact the economy, that is the real investment story behind it. So think of it this way, Nate. If I market cap weighted the index, oil would be 45%. It's probably today with market movement, we'll call it 23, 24. That's a big difference. Hmm. And if you look at the state, there's six other sectors above 10%. Texas isn't just oil. It is a very diverse economy, way more so than people think. And even if you look at the index itself, and you have your own classifications of what you would consider alternative energy, 10 to 15% of the index is alternative energy. Most people don't even think of that about Texas. And back in 08, when those funds were filed for, I bet there was none. And just a couple of minutes left here. I mean, I, I think you're laying out a, a good case as to why Texas is uh, unique and, and different. You mentioned everything is bigger in Texas. But do you think we could see any other states follow suit, at least the, the larger states? Like, could we see a California ETF or uh, a, a New York ETF, Illinois, those sorts of states? I mean, I suppose the answer could be yes. But the hard part with those states is companies aren't moving there. They're moving away from there. Yeah, good point. Right. And think of like, you know, Cisco was always headquartered in California. It's in Texas now. Charles Schwab was always headquartered in California. It's moved to Texas. You went to Illinois, Caterpillar. You know, as a former Illinois resident, I actually never thought Caterpillar would leave the state. They moved to Texas. Years and years ago, AT&T left New York and moved to Texas. So when you think about where companies are going, could other states have it? Yes, they could, but what are they doing to attract business? If you look at California, what's the top state tax on people now, 12, 13, 14%? How many people want to pay that? And so, and how many corporations want to continue to pay that? So as those companies continue to move, I think the states that could do it are the ones they're moving to. No, that makes sense. That's, the ones that they're leaving. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, before I let you go, I saw just last week that Texas Capital filed for two additional ETFs. So there's the Texas Capital Texas Oil Index ETF, ticker symbol OILT, and the uh, Texas Capital Texas Small Cap Equity Index ETF, ticker TXSS. And I know you can't speak to those directly uh, for, for regulatory reasons, but just talk about the future plans here for the ETF business? Will you stay state-specific? Will you ultimately broaden out? What, what, what can you tell us? So uh, the way I would describe it, Nate, is we want to answer what our clients are looking for. Um, if you look at the growth of TXS, right, it, it's it's not a huge fund, but we're talking 60% growth so far in the last three. Eh, we've almost been alive three months with the fund. So that's good growth. So there's demand. Um, and then as we continue to grow, we'll get broader you know, less state specific over time, but we want to make sure that what we're doing is delivering products that answer what our clients are looking for. 
And we do hear from a lot of them saying, hey, I want this or I'm looking for that. And we're trying to answer those calls because that's what our clients want. And then as we continue to grow, we'll go beyond those things and start seeing what other demands are out there from different advisors, different institutions across the board. Well, Ed, congrats on the launch of uh, TXS. Certainly wish you the best of luck with that and, and everything you're building out with the Texas Capital ETF business. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was Ed Rosenberg, head of ETF and funds management at Texas Capital Bank. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Interested in how you can generate more income for your clients? Join Vetify and other industry-leading experts on Friday, October 27th for their Income Strategy Symposium. This virtual event is free of charge and offers the opportunity to earn CE credits. Register now at etftrends.com slash income strategy symposium. Next week, I'll be joined by the one and only Rob Arnott, founder and chairman of the board of Research Affiliates. We are going to go in-depth on factor investing, smart beta ETFs in the current markets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.